news drives markets. And every day, Montel's experienced reporters are on top of the stories that shape European market developments. Can you afford to miss out? Go to montelnews.com for the latest price-driving stories and a free trial. Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast. Bring energy matters in an informal setting. Today's pod is a bit of a mixed bag. We will take primarily a look at the future, but also have a little look back in time. And today's guest is a pioneer of European wholesale energy markets. She played a key role in the integration of Norway with continental European markets and more recently was closely involved in the EU's hydrogen and offshore wind projects. In short, the ideal person to talk to us through the challenges and the opportunities ahead on the road to climate neutrality. Joining me, Richard Sverson, is Bente Hagen, former director at Norwegian TSO Startnet and ENSO e-board chairwoman. Bente, a warm welcome. Thank you so much. A pleasure to have you on the pod, Bente. So how are you doing at the moment? What are you, what are you working on? Well, I uh, retired from Startnet last year and I'm now um, have a couple of board positions, exec- non-executive board positions. I also give lectures at the university and I also enjoy my life after working many years in the energy business. But I have uh, I read Montel uh, every every morning. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot forget that. <laughs> Perfect. That's very good to hear, Bente. How is life under COVID for you? The COVID is okay. We have a nice apartment and uh, and uh, we can see uh, our children. And, uh, you know, working from home is okay. Mm. Uh, but I really want to see my colleagues in the boards. Mm. That would be great. And so uh, it, COVID is, is okay. But uh, fingers crossed, you know, there's light at yeah. the end of the tunnel in terms of vaccine and etc. Yeah. Let's start off by talking about offshore wind. The EU has quite ambitious targets here, so 300 mm. gigawatts by yeah. 2050. How feasible is this and who will finance or build it? This is feasible, but it's a big task, as you know, and it goes too slow now. I think money is available, but it's a huge amount of money. I think EU has estimated it to 800 billion euros and you need to, you know, notice that two-thirds is infrastructure costs. Mm. And not too many realize that. You know, it's Mm. about these wind farms and all the things, but infrastructure is so important here. Mm -hmm. And uh, financing, I think, we'll uh, be able to do. But how to organize organize offshore wind and the deployment of the scarce uh, seabed, it's going to be challenging. Mm. Uh, luckily, we can use a lot of the, you know, the regulations and market approaches from onshore. We don't have to change too much, but some of it we need to change. And the big, the biggest challenge might be that instead of countries working bilaterally together, building cables, which they are good at, now we need to have multilateral projects and multilateral planning. Mm-hmm. Maybe three, four, five countries together needs to build this meshed network because we know that the radial solution is fine in the first phase, but it's not enough 
for 300 gigawatts. Sure. What would you, when you say radial solution, what, what is that? Uh, this is... Just for the, those listeners who <laughs> haven't come across that term before. <laughs> it's the direct link from a wind farm to the country. Mm. It's uh, challenging enough, but that's not enough. You cannot have uh, radials all over the place because the seabed, there are competitors to use the space. Mm. You have harbors, you have shipping, you have environmental concerns. So we need to optimize the use of the seabed. Mm. And that is a new thing because we haven't done planning in this seabed overall. Mm. We have placed NSOE, you know, the organization I was a chair of the board in. We do this 10-year network development plans and they are good, but they are mostly onshore. And then mm. we place chunks of wind parks in the sea. Mm. But now we need to do detailed planning for the first phase of these 300 gigawatts, the second phase and the third phase, I'm sure. Mm. And they need to be planned together so we know that we do this in an optimal way. And uh, three countries or four countries and you know, need to sit down and plan. And they need to decide who are going to invest and how and also who is going to operate. So this is a challenge, but... TSOs and countries are used to cooperating, but mm. this is a new task. Absolutely. Sounds very challenging if you're having more than, <laughs> more than two countries involved in, in a big project of this magnitude. It's, uh, yeah, absolutely. The mind boggles. If I can stay with the organization of the offshore wind parks, I mean, you need to maybe reconfigure the way this comes into the market. So that may, you know, you're looking at offshore bidding zones. How would that work in practice? I mean, what, what's your view here? You know, it's simpler with the radials because then you go... To one, come back to one country mm. and you get the price in the country. And uh, most countries has just one zone and one price. In the Nordic, we have 12 and can live luckily with this. Has some challenges, but overall. But when you do this mashed network, it will be like the onshore network. It's not so different because you have uh, different bidding zones and you need to get all this new wind power into the market, into the market coupling mm. and into intraday and, and, uh, and also balancing. Yeah. So the bidding zones are needed to get to make sure that you get the flow going from a low price area to a high price area. Also, we have a solution onshore. This can be copied also offshore. Mm. And the alternative to this is the old uh, <laughs> central dispatch. Mm. You know, in the old days, one authority or one so-called TSO in the old days sat and said, now you're going to produce and now you're going to produce mm. and uh, you shall, uh, you know, uh, not produce. And this is not possible yeah. uh, anymore. The so fac facts the were sent from one, one city to another. That's not really feasible in the, no, in the no. modern age. So, no. so, so markets need to be taken uh, seriously also there. But they have some challenges mm. because bidding zones might increase the risk for the producers because mm. then they can get prices from different countries because their production will go to different countries. And this has to be taken care of and the risk needs to be hedged for them or else you don't get production there to be invested in. So the, the risk can be hedged in a contract if they get, get a contract from 
from a country for re- producing renewable uh, renewable production. So this has to be taken care of in the contract with a member state, or you also can have bottleneck income out there mm. because when you, the prices are low and the producers are really hurt hurt in their pricing, then often you have high bottleneck com- income. Mm. Usually the bottleneck income onshore does not go to the producers at all. Mm. It goes to reduce the net tariff or to investments. But here, the bottleneck income can also go to the producers which to reduce the risk of um, having a low price. And EU has in their uh, strategy opened up for that. That's very interesting. I, mean, I think that's a part of the solution here. I think if we're talking, you know, we, when we're talking bidding zones on, onshore, it, they have been quite political. I mean, we, there's been talk of, you know, splitting up Germany, you know, for the past 10, 15 years. And that's obviously a very difficult matter. But how would offshore bidding zones operate? Would they op- operate between member states or would one member state, you know, in the, on the seashore, you know, who owns the, who owns the, 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 the bottom yeah. of the sea in that sense? And, and how is it right that then it should be one across border bidding zone? That's what maybe I'm, I'm trying to get at here, Benton, <laughs> yeah. but is that, is that more feasible? You know? Configuration is not, uh, it can be different things. And mm. the configure, what is the most efficient and a good configuration is up to the countries and the TSOs to find out. The most important thing is that when you have a configuration, you need to make sure that it's a balance between the infrastructure hmm. that is uh, feasible for the producers to use and the volume of production. If you put too much volume into a bidding zone, you know, the prices will go down. You really need to think about how much infrastructure do we have here and how much production can we put in this place. Mm. So this is very important. And TSOs are used to think about this and do prognosis for this. But across border bidding zones, like you asked uh, about, might be the right thing to do or you can have more more country-based. But Mm. they need to be linked together. So the final configuration has to be solved in the future. Yeah, it's not a simple, simple matter of just one cable to a wind park. It's much more complex than that. Yeah, it, it's complex, but we have the pattern onshore. Absolutely. So if we if we return to onshore, Enter. So how how do you think you know the onshore bidding zones? How will they change going forward? And we've had I've, I mentioned the the German case there, but there seems to be an endless saga of review coming up here, and you know being being delayed, postponed, and and, uh, a new date coming. How is this going to move going forward, do you think? It has been a challenge, and I thought about this for years, and we discussed it a lot because the situation is not ideal in uh, continental Europe today. But this is a political question, and it ends up there. Mm. And to be honest, a lot of countries have different challenges politically when it comes to energy, that's for sure. So uh, Germany has uh, a challenge with bidding zones, and that's a challenge because they are so big and in the middle of Europe. That's why we keep talking about Germany. Mm. But I think in the short term, I don't think we will see too much changes. Mm. And we also have challenges with bidding zones with the 12 we have in the Nordic. It's not so easy for, you know, for uh, market participants either. Mm. So mm. it's always 
and it shall be discussed. What mm. is the right size? Where should it go? So mm. it's, it's good that it's, it's discussed. But I see when you see the future and you see 80% renewables or something, how can this work without price signals? We need an affordable transition. We need to use a market. We are going to digitalize everything. And half of the digitalization is not worth too much if mm. we don't have price signals. So I think we will, in the future, it will be easier to have, you know, smaller bidding zones and more price signals. And I think also when we have a, a deployment of hydrogen, green hydrogen, the most important thing for producing hydrogen, green hydrogen, is low price. Hmm. And if we don't have a price signal, <laughs> how can you really uh, get this going? Hmm. So I think this really forces itself mm. to a change long term. In the short term, you maybe you could say politics trumps economics or <laughs> physics, maybe. Yeah. But in the longer term, the nature of the market and the changes yeah. it yeah. will force. Yeah, a, the a fundamentals change. are there. So you cannot avoid it in a way. It's too costly to avoid it. Absolutely. But you mentioned hydrogen, which is going to be my next question, actually. So the European Commission's got some very ambitious goals when it comes to green hydrogen, particularly. Five gigawatts of electrolyzers installed in the EU by 2024. Is that, is that feasible? That's four years? That sounds very ambitious. So the time schedule seems very ambitious. But you see in Montel News and other news, you mm. see every day new initiatives. So it's a lot of interests for this. And it's uh, decarbonized, I call it that. Decarbonized hydrogen mm. is the only way to to decarbonize the whole energy sector. And we have all these hard to abate sectors with, uh, with uh, shipping, aviation, industry, you know, all these things that needs hydrogen or hydrogen-alike products. Some talk also about seasonal storage of hydrogen used when you need peakers, when the sun is not shining for three uh, or the wind is not blowing <laughs> for three weeks mm. and hopefully the sun will shine mm. at least daily. But mm. it will be very tough mm. without uh, peakers and power production uh, from gas. Mm. And that might be in the, you know, in the end, uh, green hydrogen. But what is now the plan, I think, for EU is to, they have really ambitious plan. If you read, if you go in and read uh, fit for 55%. Mm. They are really good in these <laughs> slogans. Hmm. Fit for 55% means uh, how can EU and Commission design regulation systems together with the countries to be able to reduce the CO2 emission with 55% in 2030. Hmm. And they have a long list of things they're going to do. And after working uh, with the commission for quite some time, and especially when I worked there for a year, mm. great experience, I saw that there are so many good people and competent people, and they have now, to be concrete on the hydrogen, they will deliver a revised gas directive. The third package, third gas directive package will be revised. And the demand side is very important in hydrogen. It's not pr just production, it's the demand side. Will uh, the loose ends, I hope, most of the loose ends when it comes to subsidy schemes, how much 
renewable hydrogen? Shall the industry use, is it 30%, 40%, 20%? All these requirements, guarantees of origin, definition of what is green, gray, blue. <laughs> Turquoise, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who is going to own the infrastructure? Third-party access. Shall TSOs be able to produce hydrogen? All these questions, mm. they are, you know, a good bunch of people, very competent people that are going to deliver most of these answers during 2021. Mm. And that will have a lot to say about the demand. And then you also can get a push. And the investors that want to produce this understand what the, what the financial consequences will be. So I hope this will give a push in uh, realizing not just pilot project, but also mm. realizing uh, these, uh, the hydrogen uh, production. Absolutely. I mean, you, you said, Benton, it's clear that in the space of a year, we've gone from sort of hydrogen being very niche to being almost mainstream, you know, with all the yeah. oil majors yeah. involved. I mean, so we've seen a flurry of projects being announced. It'd be interesting to see how many see the light of day, especially I noticed it was clearly in a I think it was in an Equinor and, and uh, SSE project in the north of England where there was a big caveat saying if the final investment decision will, ba will be based around the regulatory changes or regulatory progress that yeah. is made. Yeah. So, but in your view, are the, are the regulators sort of making, are they making good progress to ensure that this does happen? The Commission and DG Energy, who I know uh, are working on this and, and do the changes in directives, are really delivering and what to deliver. And I hope that the time schedule for 2021 will be there. And and we also always make a little fun of uh, EU. They produce too much paper. It's <laughs> too much regulation. It's so important to have efficient regulation and you will not be able to implement the, you know, the Green Deal goals if it's not really good regulation existing. Absolutely. I mean, if we can go back and talk a little bit about your time in NSOE and Startnet, where you, you, you were sitting on these, these meetings, you know, what, what was it like there? Was it, is there a lot of tension there? Are there disagreements or is everybody generally just quite sort of quite happy to, to reach a compromise or an agreement? It's a lot of discussions, but TSOs are used to for years, even before the liberalization to work together. Mm. So they know each other mm. personally. They've been growing up together in their operational rooms. So you have a very good relationship, but it's a lot of conflict. And when you take out all the win-win gains first, which mm. you have done, like in the Nordic, we took out the win-win gains first. Everybody agreed. And also Europe has taken out a lot of the win-win gains, mm. you know, coupling and market coupling and all these things which was, has been very beneficial, then you push and then the conflicts come because some things you want to fight for your country. But the challenge is that it goes a little late. Mm. It goes in the right direction, but, you know, I'm an, <laughs> <laughs> I'm an eager person and, uh, and I, uh, I think sometimes it was late, the movement. Mm. But in the end, when you work with so big things and so valuable gains for society, mm. it's okay that it takes a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the, that's something, the pace of progress is maybe something that people find very challenging, you know, why? Yeah. yeah. 
If you could change anything about the European power market design, what would it be, Benta, and why? Well, I talked about price signals, so mm. well, that's gone. Uh, <laughs> or, I, you know, it's not gone, but, uh, you know, I think the heating sector... Mm-hmm. is under-communicated uh, and underestimated because 80% of, or 70 to 80% of the emissions comes from the heating set- sector in uh, continent Europe and in Europe. And coming from the Nordic, we don't understand this really because we have a re- relatively cheap, uh, cheap electricity, low uh, net tariffs, subsidy schemes, not so expensive, and also distribution distribution network systems developed relatively good developed when you go to the uh, to continental europe they have gas coal and oil uh, mm. heating and all the appliances in the houses are for this and they have under invested in, or they don't have the dso network or distribution system network does not have the right capacity to do the direct electrification, which should be natural and pretty cheap. So they have a challenge and the heating sector, and if I should change something, mm, sure, it would be a better taxation. Mm-hmm. Because you, it's also a lot of countries putting all the transition taxes, the subsidy schemes, it's put on electricity. Mm. And that is really wrong, you know. Mm. So you need to put that on fossil uh, energy. And I think like Denmark and Germany has huge electricity, a very high electricity price. But they are now changing the taxation. Mm. And especially Denmark, now they have reduced the tax on electricity. So the heating can be decarbonized in a better way. So this heating, I think we need to make sure that we focus on heating and the market design to prevent that uh, this still will be fossil. Finally, Bente, you know, in, in your time at Start at NCOE, you know, Brexit happened. Was this a shock for the TSO here in Norway and, and on a European level? Uh, and how did you deal with it? It was not a shock, but it was a challenge, surely. And uh, UK has always been a part of the European market and UK energy and... and uh, UK liberalized early, are happy with markets, using markets. So the push for market design and good, efficient markets, we needed the help from the UK. But, you know, we will have in the future also a good relationship with with the UK. But it has a challenge because now they are thrown out of the market coupling. And you've seen high prices bikes. And I also read that they have different day ahead prices in the UK. That's up to UK to solve. Absolutely. They should be able to solve that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bente Hagen, thank you very much for joining the Monto Weekly Podcast today. Thank, thank you. you. So listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Monto Weekly Podcast. Please direct message any suggestions, questions, or, you know, let us know if you if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.